This is They Create Worlds, Episode 46, Atari, Ray Kassar, and Warner. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we get part three of three. We delve into more of Atari. Nolan Bushnell has left. He's gone. Been fired. No, he left of his own volition. Yes, as much as anyone leaves of their own volition when they've been told that they have to leave or they'll be thrown out by security. Yeah, that kind of own volition. (laughs) For the record, I don't think a scene like that ever happened. It was just appropriate to the moment here. That's right. Atari is now under the leadership of Ray Kassar. That's right. A textile industry executive of long-standing experience who has never been involved in a technology company before, but Warner is basically hoping that his long experience with consumer products and with consumer marketing will bring Atari to the next level. Because we have to remember where we left Atari is that they were doing okay. They were growing in terms of sales volume, But they were still largely losing money, and this whole Atari VCS thing hadn't really quite taken off with the public yet. The public had a lot of electronic options at this point. You had had those dedicated console systems that, of course, Atari was very big in. Then you had the market bifurcate with cheap electronic handhelds using LED displays, like the kind of thing Mattel was making, moving into the low end of the market. And programmable consoles like Atari's VCS and Fairchild's VES moving into the high end where things were a little more expensive. They hadn't quite gotten the retail community to follow them up into that high end yet. The public was kind of on board with it, sort of, but the retail community was not because that was still a very big stretch for a toy buyer. And while they were selling not just in toy stores, there was still that toy company presence. So at this point, Atari sales are still 50% through Sears. We talked about how Sears was the first company to take a chance on them in the dedicated console market. 50% of their sales are still through Sears. Even though Sears is the largest retailer in the country, that's a good thing. It's never good to have so much of your product dependent on a single source. It means that the retail community is not fully embracing this product. You don't have all of your eggs in one basket. So if something, for whatever reason, some executive at Sears decides, I don't like this video game thing, I'm not buying it anymore, poof, there goes 50% of your sales. Exactly. And their sales are still not particularly robust. You may recall that in 1978, they had manufactured 800,000 consoles, hoping that they could double their sales volume from the first year, and retailers ended up only stocking about 500,000 of them. So they have 300,000 consoles, give or take, sitting around in warehouses, unsold. They have dedicated consoles piling up in warehouses because they have tried to keep that market going. They know that the market's going programmable, but they were trying to transition into that new market. So they had some new dedicated systems as well, newer systems like Video Pinball, which was a $100 unit. None of that was really selling, so that stuff was piling up. 
coin-operated video games are going through a bit of a lull in this period. Atari's coin-op is doing fine. They're not losing money. They're okay. It's just that it's not doing enough to make up for what's going on elsewhere. And you still have a company that has very little structure. We talked, especially at the end of the last episode, about Nolan Bushnell, the dreamer, Nolan Bushnell, the enthusiast, Nolan Bushnell, the visionary. And we talked about how he's not Nolan Bushnell, the organizer. Joe Keenan, who was president with Nolan, he was more of an organizer. He was more of a business guy. But they never really built a solid corporate structure. Atari is at the point now where its sales volume is going over $100 million in $1978. That's pretty good. Right. This is not a startup anymore. It can't operate in a startup mentality. Nolan is a startup mentality kind of guy. So at this point, they needed somebody to come in and organize. Now, it's always a balancing act. You have to be careful that organizing doesn't just turn into bureaucracy and needless levels of management, which is a little bit of what happened the first time they brought in outside management, Dr. John Wakefield and company, back in 1973. Obviously, it's always dangerous when you start adding management on top of something that's been working well with a kind of loose management structure, but Atari can't function as a $100 million company with no clear financial reporting, with no clear hierarchy, with no solid manufacturing. I mean, this is the time that change is needed, and so they decided that Ray Kassar is the person, for better or for worse, that they thought that could affect the change that the company needed to become a real corporation at this point, which is what a $100 million company is. And that's why Warner Communications really picked Ray Kassar primarily because he was somewhat beholden to them. They went to him, they gave him an offer he couldn't refuse, come out here, this is a temporary <laughs> thing. And he was really initially there representing Warner. Mm -hmm. Then it became, well, we need you to take a more active role. So right. we're putting you in charge, representing our interests, running this company. That's correct. And if I had to guess why, other than uh, Bill Sarnoff's recommendation, as we discussed last time, if I had to guess why they thought Ray Kassar is somebody that could do this kind of thing, he obviously had a strong background in consumer marketing, though home furnishings marketing is a very different kind of marketing than consumer electronics marketing. He still was in a consumer business, but Burlington was also a large corporation with lots of subsidiaries. So it was very similar in that regard to Warner. So Ray Kassar is somebody that had run divisions for Burlington Industries and knew what it was like to have responsibility for a big chunk of a business, but then also have to report further up the chain to a parent company that is ultimately guiding things. He had the kind of background that made sense for moving in to this Warner situation where Warner has a bunch of subsidiaries, Warner Brothers, Warner Records. Atari, etc., that operate at varying degrees of autonomy that also are going to ultimately have to report in and be responsible to this parent company, this conglomerate that is overseeing the whole thing through the office of the president that Manny Gerard is part of, who is directly responsible for Atari at Warner, and then ultimately, of course, answerable to Steve Ross, the chairman of the company. So... 
what's there to say about Ray Kassar? There's been a lot said about Ray Kassar. From what I remember you telling me, nothing good. Very little good. Uh, <laughs> uh, from the perspective of the people doing the reporting, obviously. But that's something that's really not fair to Ray. You got to interview him, right? I did. Well, I wouldn't say it's entirely unfair to Ray, though. Here's what Ray Kassar was. Ray Kassar was a guy who remained very involved in all aspects of the Atari business. He made sure to know what was going on. He made sure to hold executives accountable. And if an executive, a high-level executive, came to him and said, well, we can't do this because so-and-so says that this is not possible, he would call up so-and-so further on down the line and, and say, you know, this vice president or president says that, you know, this is the holdup. Is, is that true? So he involved himself very strongly in all levels of the company, and he didn't let anyone get away with anything, so to speak. I mean, he kept things fairly centralized, even though it was a large company. There are some advantages to that. Certainly, you don't want to just be a clueless CEO that has no idea what your company's doing. On the other hand, it felt very emasculating to many of his presidents and corporate vice presidents that Kassar was so directly involved in the business, and, and it almost felt like he would become a bottleneck to making decisions, and that there was kind of too much authority entrusted at the very top of the company and not enough authority delegated to the presidents and corporate VPs, which is also a fair point. And the other thing is, he held people accountable, which was good. People should be held accountable. But the way he did it and the way he ended up playing people off against each other did lead to a lot of conflict and a lot of turnover. This was important at the beginning when he came in, because when he came in, there needed to be a lot of cleaning of the house and a lot of bringing in of new people, because Atari was not very well corporately situated. Coinop was fine. There was a great team in Coinop, and Kassar didn't really touch Coinop. On the consumer side of the business and on the corporate level of the business, there was a need to build a larger team that could take the company to the next level, and so there needed to be turnover, and there were people not pulling their own weight that needed to be moved out of the company. But once you get a competent team in place, you need to build that team. You need to nurture that team and allow that team to grow and grow your business. They never got to the team building stage. And I've talked to numerous people at Atari now at the VP and presidential level. This is what these people have told me. There was never really a team built at Atari, because nothing would ever settle down enough for that, because Kassar was always playing the angles and always getting involved in what's going on in the business and always pitting people against each other in such a way that did not allow team building to happen. So really, he was almost micromanaging how everything was almost to death. And because he was trying to get all of these different presidents to do their job quickly and efficiently, they never had the time to really mesh, know other people, know what was appropriate when they were working together in order to really mesh together in a way that would allow them to achieve the goals that Ray wanted. Well, and it was just the turnover. I mean, people got burned out working in that environment. You can't build a team if everyone's constantly leaving because they're burned out. He brought discipline to the company. There was no discipline before Ray. 
Ray worked as a very strong disciplinarian, and that helped establish the company. Without someone like Ray Kassar coming in at the time Ray Kassar came in, you don't get Atari's big years, Atari's glory years in 1980, 1981, half of 1982. Kassar brought something to the company that was very important. He also brought problems to the company just in the way that the team was not allowed to coalesce in a way to keep the company successful. And, and so there, there were problems. We're not out to vindicate entirely Ray Kassar here, but we are out to at least explain what he did, what he didn't do that people think he did, and how responsible he was ultimately for how things went south. I don't think you can put all the blame at all on Ray Kassar for the way things turned out, because even with the management difficulties, Ray Kassar was still building a company that was doing very well, and a lot of the outside market forces that ultimately sunk the company weren't necessarily Ray Kassar's fault. So it's, it's not about vindicating or ignoring the problems, because there were absolutely problems. It's just like with everything else we tried to do in the podcast, it's about putting it in context with other events, with other issues. Put it in perspective. There were good things that Ray did. He brought discipline. He cleaned house. Mm -hmm. Some of the bad things might be the way he went about that could have been done better or something else entirely. And he also definitely understood that Coinop was doing well and he could leave Coinop alone. And that was important, too, because definitely. if he had messed with the chemistry of Coinop, which is where all the hits come from, then that could have been disastrous for the company. So, you know. He realizes what is working and what's not. It's almost like the consumer division where you have a patient that is hurt. You're mm -hmm. going in there surgically trying to clean things up, but the process of surgery keeps cutting and meshing with things. Sure. And then the patient doesn't have time to properly heal. Mm -hmm. And exactly. you need to have a time off, hands off, not doing surgery <laughs> to let the patient heal so that you can properly rework things. Sure. You have to remember that Atari was a coin-operated games company. And in fact, we may have mentioned this in the Atari brand episode. I can't remember if we did or not. The coin-op employees, those people that remained at what became Atari Games and then continued to be a coin-op company through the 80s into the 90s, considered themselves to be the true Atari. It started as a coin company. It was started by Nolan Bushnell, whose experience, as limited as it was at the time, was in coin. It's a company that started in the arcade that didn't do any of the home stuff until several years later. And even as the home stuff became successful, the home became successful by embracing and converting the hits that were coming out in the arcade. So Atari was a coin company and Atari understood how to be a coin company. They had a president in Gene Lipkin that had long experience in the coin-op industry, long experience for someone his age, and then grew up in the coin-op industry because his father had been in it for so long. They knew how that world worked. So all of this consumer stuff is the stuff that was alien to them, was the stuff that was new to them. And so that's the area that is naturally, even if they hadn't had the sales difficulties that they had in the beginning, and believe me, 77 and 78, they had huge sales difficulties in some ways. Even if they hadn't had the sales difficulties, that was always going to be the area where they struggled the most, because that was not what the company was. That was tacked on to an existing coin-op company. Ray Kassar becomes president in 1979, very beginning, January 79. The most immediate problem that the company has is they have all of these units sitting 
around in warehouses. And there's not much they can do with them, in theory, because it's a seasonal business. We may remember that in 1977, they shipped too late and had leftover inventory after that year. And the management told Malcolm Kuhn, director of sales and consumer, and now we've got to sell the rest of these. And Malcolm Kuhn was like, I can't. And then they were like, well, we'll find someone who can. You're fired. And of course, I mean, they didn't find somebody who could. It was a Christmas item because it was a $200 system. You have to keep in mind that back then, big ticket items were only sold for entertainment around Christmas. It's not like today where, oh, Johnny wants a new Xbox. Great. I'll just buy it. That's right. They've got to change that. That's the very first thing. They have these extra systems. If they're going to get the company not losing money anymore, they're going to have to start making it more of a year-round item. You figure you're still going to do a huge portion of your business at Christmas time, but you've got to convince retailers that this is something that you can sell year-round, even if you don't sell as much in April as you do in November. There's a couple of ways to do that. One way is to really make sure that you've got a year-round cartridge business going. When they first introduced the VCS in 77, they launched it with nine games. Those nine games basically represented the full gamut of what the VCS was capable of as a system. Because the VCS was based on the idea that it's got to play Pong and it's got to play Tank. Because those are Atari's two biggest hits over time. Obviously, Pong's no longer a hit in 1977, but it was their biggest hit. It was basically designed to play games like Pong and Tank and similar games thereof. And that's mostly still what Atari was releasing in the arcade in that time period. Most of their games were either ball and paddle games, like, say, Breakout, which was more recent, or they were one-on-one competition games where there's a limited amount of shooting involved, either at each other or at targets. There was Tank, then there was Jet Fighter, which was Tank in the Air. There was Anti-Aircraft, which was you're both controlling guns at the bottom of the screen, and there's objects flying by the top of the screen, and, and you're shooting them down and trying to score the most points. They have that stuff going on, and then they have the driving games going on that are big hits as well. The VCS ships with nine games that basically encapsulates all of that. Video Olympics is Pong and then a million variants on Pong. Combat is Tank and then a million variations on Tank, including the Jet Fighter variants. So you can also do two planes or one plane and big other plane and stuff like that, all these variations. They've got their take on anti-aircraft. They have their take on the driving games. They had done a first-person shooting game called Starship, and they have a take on that. The nine launch titles are kind of running the gamut of capability because the thought is members of the public will probably just focus on two or three or four of their favorites and not buy all of them. It becomes fairly clear fairly quickly that the cartridges are going to be popular, that releasing more and more cartridges is going to be a good way to go because the cartridge sales end up actually, at least according to Nolan, being even greater than they'd expected. More people are buying more cartridges with the system than they thought. This has led some people to characterize the Atari business as a razor and razor blades business. I think we've talked about this before in the past, but are, are you familiar with that theoretical yeah. model of commerce? 
I think we did go over this before. The idea behind that is I buy a razor. Think of something like Gillette or whatever. Right. Gillette's the originator of this concept, as a matter of fact. So it's a big razor. I got the handle, but the blades themselves are interchangeable. I can just pop one off when it's gone and put a new one on. When I have to buy a new blade, I don't have to buy a new handle. I can just buy a new cartridge of blades Mm -hmm. and just put that in. That's less than buying the whole blade and handle. But since I already have the handle, I just keep buying blades and blades and blades until I'm done shaving. And what you do is you basically give the razor away. You don't try to make money on the razor. There's no point. You sell it at cost. Right. Or even maybe at a small loss, depending. Mm -hmm. That's just to get them locked in. Because, of course, you patent your locking mechanism or your blade mechanism or whatever. So your Gillette razor is only going to take Gillette razor blades. You're not trying to make money on the razor. You want to make sure that every household in America has a Gillette razor in it so that all of those households are constantly buying Gillette razor blades. And then you raise the price on those. You still keep them affordable, but you raise the price comparable to your costs so that your margins on the blades are huge. Give away the razors, sell the blades. That is a strategy that has been used a lot in the history of video games. There are plenty of companies that have basically given away the video game system to make money on the software. But I want to be clear, Atari was not one of them. I've had this from multiple people, multiple executives, from Ray Kassar at the top down to Alan Henrik, who was the comptroller, the money man in the consumer division, and people in between. Atari always maintained large margins on the hardware. They always made money on the hardware. Now, they maintained even larger margins on the software because the software, depending on the amount of memory used, was somewhere between 2 and $5 worth of components, and then they sold that cartridge for somewhere between $20 and $40. Well, $20 to $40 at retail, so obviously retail's marking up over what Atari's making, but still, you're talking about something that's final retail price is going to be $20 for $2 worth of components or $40 for $4 worth of components. That's a huge margin. So obviously they're making money hand over fist on the software, but they're also making money on the hardware. I want to emphasize very strongly because this gets misreported. Atari was not a razor and razor blades business, but they did understand that the cartridge being a cheaper product is something that they could push year round in a way that they couldn't necessarily push the system year round. Maybe that big $200 console is too expensive for mom and dad to buy for little Johnny in April. They got to wait for that Christmas bonus to come in to buy that Christmas gift. But a $20 cartridge, which is what most of the initial cartridges cost, a $20 cartridge is something that you can maybe buy on a birthday or buy when Johnny gets good grades at the end of the school year or something like that. That's something that you can maybe buy year-round. So the first part of making sure that the Atari business can become a year-round business is to make sure that you've got that steady stream. And I mean, this started even before Ray Kassar became CEO. They become very aggressive in starting to hire new programmers into the consumer division so that they can churn out more software. The other thing that you do is you give distributors and retailers good terms. If you say, take our system now and you don't have to pay for 90 days instead of 60 days, or you don't have to pay for 120 days instead of 60 days or whatever, 
offer them better terms and they might be more willing to take your system. Offer good commissions to your salespeople, to your sales reps, and they may be more inclined to push your system onto retailers, which makes the whole thing so successful. 1979 becomes a year of sell systems any way you possibly can, essentially, because they've got to get rid of those systems they have hanging around in a warehouse. They're no good to them there. And to do that, they bring in the man that, going back to their dedicated console days, had been one of their most successful sales reps. And that was a guy named Don Kingsborough. Did we talk about Don before? The name sounds a little familiar. We have. He's been involved in various capacities. He later founded Worlds of Wonder. I know we talked about Worlds of Wonder in the context of Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Don Kingsborough is a natural salesman. He's just very good at selling things. That's one of his main strengths. And this is a period of time where they need a salesman because they have a product that people don't necessarily want in this time period. They'll take it at Christmas, but we're trying to sell it in, in January. <laughs> January, February, March, April, May, June. At that point, you need salesmen. And so they bring in Don Kingsborough, and they bring in a lot of reps, and this is the period of time where they actually sow a lot of the seeds of their later destruction. As we talked about some in the crash episode, Atari's failure, which we'll talk about in more detail, obviously, later in the episode, Atari's failure is a failure of retail channels. It's a failure of distribution. It's a failure of having the right amount of product in the right place at the right time. And a lot of the problem that they had with that came about because of their distribution system and their sales rep situation that was put in place during this time period when they were just desperate to get product out. So they were making deals with a lot of distributors, a lot of sales reps that were not necessarily territorially exclusive. So you were having overlapping sales reps, overlapping distributors. You were putting in a commission structure that was perhaps a little bit high, but was kind of important at this juncture just to motivate these reps to get the product into the retailers because they've got to get this stuff sold. It's sort of like they really put the fire up way hot to heat up the pan, get everything going. But once the water's boiling, they just let it continue to boil and overboil. They didn't bring it down to medium and let it simmer. Pretty much. I mean, that's, that's a good analogy. I like that. That's Don's strength. So Don was doing that, and Don was good at schmoozing retailers and getting them to take product. He was good at making side deals, too, which... <laughs> Again, this is a period of time when the company just needed to get stuff sold. And so there was a lot of making side deals with certain retailers, a lot of offering terms that really weren't necessarily officially Atari terms, hoping that that would entice retailers to take things. Like Atari at this time had a no returns policy. So a side deal would be, okay, Frank, I understand this is hard to take this new product. Why don't you just put it on your shelf? We'll let it sit there for 120 days, 180 days, because I like you. If you don't sell it by then, that's okay. I just wanted you to put it there on the shelf, see how it goes for you. After 180 days, just give it back to me. Cool. We'll pay for the shipping. Mm -hmm. Everything's fine. No, exactly. You know, according to the people that were there, 
those kind of deals were definitely going on that were not necessarily deals that should have been sanctioned, but it was an all-hands-on-deck kind of thing. The CFO of the company at the time, Dennis Groth, told me there was a feeling that they needed to do whatever they had to do to move the product. This was before the period of time when the product took off. The product does not take off until 1980. We'll talk about that. 77, 78, 79, they're shipping some product. They're getting some retailers involved, but they can't get into everybody. They're not in Walmart, for instance, in this period of time. They're still deriving so much of their sales just from Sears. And they've got to get the product established as a year-round product in the face of a very, very skeptical retail base because it's expensive. It's like, yeah, yeah, we had a success with this at Christmas. We, we'll carry it at Christmas for you, but no one's going to pay $200, $180 if you can get a little sale going. Not for, in late 70s money. For a product. Yeah, in late 70s money for, for this kind of product in March. We can't take it. And so they're like, no, 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 no. Just, just trust us. We're going to put a lot of marketing behind this because Ray Kassar is definitely a solid marketing guy. They're getting some marketing campaigns, advertising campaigns, TV going. We're going to put a solid ad campaign behind this. We're going to have a lot of software available. We're going to have new software coming in all the time to entice the buyers. Let's just try this for a bit. And if it doesn't work out, then okay, we're fine. And then, you know, really a lot of high-commissioned sales reps in sometimes overlapping and competing territories. It's, it's a bit of a mess because they're basically just scrambling to do whatever they can do. The sales rep thing becomes a big issue. It becomes the bane of everybody who follows in the position after Kingsborough because they all try to get rid of them and they never can. There's pushback from the very top, and I'm not sure exactly why. I mean, I don't know why Ray Kassar even was so insistent on keeping a lot of the structure in place. Bill Grubb, who took over as the VP of Sales and Marketing for the Consumer Division in the middle of 1979, after Don Kingsborough went back to his consulting company, and who remained with the company until 1981 in that capacity, he told me that through his entire tenure, he was trying and trying and trying to get rid of a lot of these sales reps, take more of it in-house, and streamline what sales reps they had and get the commissions down because he thought it was totally out of whack. And he could never get it done. And he said that was one of his big frustrations. Another guy who did sales later on named Wynn Weber, Ethan interviewed him. And Wynn told Ethan that he was basically fired because of his insistence on trying to get rid of the sales reps. This was like in early 1983 when the whole thing was coming crashing down. He really wanted to get rid of sales reps at that point, and he says he was basically fired because he pushed too hard on that. They've got distribution going, and they're kind of starting to get systems moving a little more, but it comes at a terrible cost down the line. And I think that the people there at the time, and certainly the people that I talked to that were there at the time, would say they did what they had to do to move the product. And I think that's true because obviously if you don't succeed in the first place, you can't have that massive failure. So I think that Atari in 1979 was really in a position where they felt that if they didn't do everything they needed to do right now, they wouldn't necessarily have a business in 1980, not a business worth talking about. So we really need to have that water boiling on high. Absolutely. So kind of late 78, early 79 is a bit of a wild west period. Through 1979, they start bringing in more 
structure and more responsible corporate people. I mentioned the hiring of Bill Grubb. Bill Grubb came from Black & Decker. He had very strong experience in consumer marketing and in consumer product development, not games. I mean, he had no experience in consumer electronics, so that was something he was going to have to learn. But he led marketing teams that developed product for Black & Decker, so he did understand a lot of the process. And he was a very solid, more corporate, less salesman-y person in contrast to Don Kingsborough. So once Don Kingsborough kind of got things rolling, then they brought in the more responsible corporate guy, so to speak, to kind of keep things moving. Then at the very end of the year, they brought in a guy named Michael Moon to be the consumer division president. This was their one guy that they brought in from the toy industry. Michael Moon had come up through Mattel, and then he had been the general manager at Milton Bradley. Milton Bradley had some experience with consumer electronics because they had a big hit with Simon. So not a video game, but... An electronic device. An electronic device. So Michael Moon was a very important guy to bring in, and he's really the guy that helped them break out of this rut with Sears being so much of their business because Michael Moon knew the toy people. He knew the retailers that sold toys. I've interviewed Michael Moon, but I've also interviewed people that worked for him. And he was described to me as people who worked for him as a guy who was a very good schmoozer. He was very well connected. He knew mm -hmm. people in the industry. He knew how to say the things that people in the industry wanted to hear in order to accept the product. Right. And he had movie star good looks. <laughs> One of the people I interviewed, John Powers told me that when he was first brought on to Atari uh, in the home computer division that, well, actually, I'm, I'm sorry, there wasn't a, separ a, a separate home computer division yet, I don't think, when he was brought on. But when he was brought on to be part of the home computer apparatus, that I think was still part of Consumer Electronics at the time, he was first brought in by Steve Bristow, who was in charge of engineering. And then he went to a resort hotel where Atari was having something going on to first kind of meet the Atari people and, and meet his overall boss, would be Michael Moon. And so they're at this kind of fancy hotel anyway, and Steve Bristol tells him, hey, there's someone I need you to meet. And they go over, and he's like, is he introducing me to some movie star here by the pool? And it's like, no, <laughs> it's the president of Consumer Electronics at Atari. So he's got charisma, and he's got this ability to schmooze, and he's got these connections. So Michael Moon kind of makes it his mission when he first gets there in 1980 to really start opening up some of those retail channels. And obviously, Bill Grubb is helping in this as well as the head of sales and marketing. The two of them together are really trying to open up these additional retail channels and build on what they've done in 79. 79 is a better year than 78. After the retailers had been initially reluctant to stock the system, as we discussed, because they thought the electronic handheld was going to just completely take it over, they did discover that they sold out of a lot of what they actually carried. So 79's a better year. They sell maybe close to a million units of the system, which is good. It's starting to pick up some momentum, but it's not breakout hit yet. It's not gigantic. The thing that makes it gigantic is Space Invaders. That did really, really well. In the arcade. Incredibly well, ridiculously well. 60,000 units in the United States alone, over 300,000 worldwide. 60,000, the next biggest hit before this time was what? 
There were a few games in the past that had reached the 10 to 15,000 milestone. Obviously, if you added up every single Pong clone and Pong variant together, those may have all between them hit somewhere around 70,000 in 1973. But that's every unit together. No one game had sold more than 17,000, and most of them sold more in the 8 to 10,000 range. Just the aggregate was was 70,000. So let's say conservatively four times the highest level game to that point. Right. Just a phenomenon. And a game that arcades weren't just buying one copy of or two copies of. They were buying five copies of it, putting them all side by side, which is unheard of because arcades rely on novelty. You have to have a lot of different things and you have to change them constantly to keep the public interested and to keep the public coming back. So an arcade didn't buy more than one copy of any individual game, maybe two copies if it was a really popular game. And they had a big space. Right. But you're talking about sticking five, six, seven machines side by side by side because that's all anyone wants to play. It's huge in the arcade. But of course, it's not an Atari game. It's a Taito game, and it's released in the United States by Midway Manufacturing. Manny Girard, who is watching over the Atari business from the Warner side, takes credit for this, and nobody else gainsays him. Ray Kassar couldn't remember, but he also said that it sounded plausible to him. <laughs> that, you know, he had no reason to think anywhere else. It was Manny Girard that realized when he saw Space Invaders at Atari, because they kept a game room at Atari, saw Space Invaders at Atari, and was like, we can put this on the VCS if we license the game, the name, and the gameplay from Taito. And so he marched on over to Ray Kassar and was like, you need to license this game. And Ray Kassar's like, you're right. I do need to license this game. So they make the deal with Taito, and in 1980, probably around April, video games didn't have set street dates at that time, but ads for the game start showing up in April. Around April 1980, they release Space Invaders on the VCS. It's an incredible feat of programming to even get Space Invaders to exist on the VCS, because the VCS is only technically able to display five objects. If that. Five objects at, at any given time. Four player graphics and one ball graphic. That's what it can display, theoretically. Using a lot of programming tricks of, of this and that, Rich Maurer, the guy who does the game, manages to get an approximation of Space Invaders going on the VCS. It releases in 1980, and it is an immediate hit. The VCS is suddenly now a huge hit. And they release Space Invaders in April because they understand that, again, this is a game that can help them in their quest to get that year-round thing going. They don't want to hold Space Invaders for Christmas. They want to release Space Invaders in April so that people are buying that big game then, and the people that don't already have a VCS and just absolutely have to play Space Invaders in the home are going to go out and buy a VCS to play Space Invaders with. Space Invaders, most likely, I say most likely because all I have is people's memories, not actual documents, most likely sets the record for tie ratio on a console, the number of owners of the console that, that own the game. Uh, over the life of the system, so we're not just talking about owners right now, we're talking about up through the, the early 80s, well over a third of all VCS owners 
end up owning a Space Invaders cartridge. I mean, it sells millions and millions of copies over its lifetime. For those interested, I'm in the two-thirds section. <laughs> or rather, the person you got your Atari from. <laughs> My grandparents, yeah. Exactly. Since you weren't buying at the time. That's right. That was the turning point for the VCS, and that was what allowed it to start gaining momentum. So you have sales improving to, say, $400 million in 1980. Then you have sales going up to $1 billion in 1981. $600 million increase. They get to a point where they're starting to double their sales volume every year. Literally exponential growth. Their sales forecasts are not based on how much they think they can sell. Their sales forecasts are based on how much their manufacturing people tell them that they can make because they know they're going to sell everything they can make. And retailers are taking notice because, well, that thing I took in to put on the shelf for 180 days, it's sold in two. That's right. And chronic shortages, chronic shortages, especially of software, because now you've got the arcade picking up because Space Invaders has driven the beginning of this so-called golden age in the arcade. And the arcades are becoming huge. And then people want those same game experiences in the home. Coin-op, in this case, was Atari's secret weapon. We talked before in our Mattel Electronics episode about how Mattel, their main competitor in these early years, the 8081 period, was at a supreme disadvantage, even though they had a superior hardware at a still fairly reasonable price, because they did not have the arcade hits. Atari, what they could do, because they had a coin-op division, even though their coin-op division was not creating all the hits, and their coin-op division starts turning out hits in this period too, obviously, like Asteroids and Centipede, even though they don't have all the hits, they know the coin-op business. They know how the competition is doing in the coin-op business. They know which games are profitable, and they know, based on their own experience with their own games, how much a hit game is going to sell on the VCS if it's a hit in the arcade. So what they are able to do, again, this is you know from interviews, Michael Moon told me what their process was on this. What they were able to do is they were able to pinpoint exactly how much money everybody was going to make on an arcade conversion of a hit game. Then because they knew those numbers so well, they could go to the creator of that game, which was usually a small Japanese manufacturer. Not always. Obviously, they made deals with some Americans too, like Williams Electronics and Centuri, and tell them, we are going to offer you this much up front, this much of an advance up front in royalties, and then we're going to offer you this royalty rate on the game going forward. They could offer a big advance and a high royalty rate with confidence because they knew from their own coin-op division what the margins were going to be. If they didn't have a coin-op division, they could not have done this with the same ruthless precision that they did it with. And a coin-op manufacturer is selling big cabinets and investing a lot in inventory. They're often small operations that don't necessarily have the greatest of margins just on those cabinets they're selling. So an extra risk-free source of income, which is what this licensing deal is, where they get an advance on royalties of a large chunk of money that they can use today. And then if their game is a hit, a lot more coming in, in terms of royalties after that. Well, there ain't a coin-op company out there that isn't going to take that deal 
Sure. If you're going to program it here, you can use Space Invaders. You can use whatever. That's right. And Atari can always afford to offer you the best deal, not just because they're a big company that's now starting to make lots of money, but because they know they can safely offer a big amount of money up front because they've got it pretty much down to a science in terms of knowing what's going to be a hit and what's not. That's a good place to kind of stop and backtrack into the arcade division, because without having such a great arcade coin-op division, they wouldn't be able to do those calculations with that amount of ruthless efficiency. The thing that really makes Atari's coin-op work very well in this period is that they have a guy in Gene Lipkin and a guy in his sales and marketing manager, Frank Ballou, who did not come from the coin industry, actually. He came from the sporting goods industry, but was a friend of Gene's down in Florida when Gene was at Allied Leisure. And so he brought him in because he knew that Frank was really good at this kind of thing, even if he hadn't done arcade games before. They were individuals that were very good at figuring out whether a game was any fun and they were very good at killing anything that wasn't. The arcade industry operates in such a way that if one out of three of your games actually makes it to the public, to manufacturing, you're doing a good job. It's a business where you're always going to have a lot of interesting ideas. You're always going to have concepts that you're like, yeah, that could be good. Yeah, that could be good. But because it's a very expensive product, it's in this big arcade cabinet, (laughs) you have to make sure that whatever you actually bring out to market is going to sell well. Since you're only manufacturing maybe a couple of games at a time on your manufacturing line, and because it's an expensive product that you have to put a lot of money into manufacturing up front before you're necessarily getting good sales, if you have a couple of duds in a row that can be enough to bury a coin-op company and kill it. So you have to be ruthless and you have to be willing to kill your babies because your engineers are always going to have a lot of ideas that sound really good on paper. But then when they get to the stage of prototyping, maybe they're not quite so fun. And so at that point, the engineer is going to keep fighting for his game because the engineer is always going to be convinced, I just have a little more time. I can figure out the thing because it's such a cool concept. So I just tweak this and do this. Let's put it out on test again. Let's get some more results. And then I'll tweak this and tweak that. Let's put it out on test. If you let that happen, then you're sunk. You have to actually push back against your engineers and at some point in CoinOp, your engineers and your programmers. Gene Lipkin and Frank Ballou were really good at doing that. They would have a weekly meeting where they would go over to the labs and see what was going on in the labs. They were really good at telling, is this fun, is this not fun, and really good at saying, okay, yeah, I think we can salvage this with a little more work, maybe try this, maybe try that, or just plain out saying, no, this this is never going to work no matter how much time we put into it, so we are going to go ahead and kill this project, you need to go on to something else. They were very good at that. That doesn't mean that every game that Atari released ever was a hit, because obviously not everything's ever going to be a hit. But it minimized the number of absolute stinkers they threw into the marketplace. The other thing that Gene Lipkin was very good at is he was good at figuring out how long to run a game. If your manufacturing is too far out of whack with your demand, then you're going to end up piling up a lot of very, very expensive arcade cabinets that nobody wants anymore once demand crests. Because as we just said a few minutes ago, it's a novelty field. 
At this point, it's not quite a hits-driven business yet. We talked about in our crash episode how when the arcade market really overheated, it became such a hits-driven business that people only wanted the biggest and bestest game, and that game was only going to last for three months. Games could last a little longer than that in this period, 79, 80. You still had to make sure that your manufacturing run did not go on so long that you had product that has appeared after the popularity is crested and you're stuck. And so Lipkin was very good at figuring out what the production run should be as well. He was good at balancing engineering and production. They also did a good job of putting a regional sales team in place. Most of the coin-op companies relied, at this point, still on a single sales manager kind of in charge of everything. Some of the bigger companies like Bally may have regional people, but most of the companies don't. Lipkin got a regional sales team in. So there was one guy for the East and there was one guy for the West that could be more in tune to the specific needs of those specific markets where there are very different kind of establishments maybe having games in them and being kind of in tune with the market in that way. They also started market research before anyone else did. Market research in the coin-op industry had traditionally just been, we put a game out on test, we see what the coin drop is. If it makes a lot of money, we put it out. If it doesn't make a lot of money, we kill it, and we never put it out. A lot of games get all the way to the prototype stage, and maybe even take in a decent amount of money in the arcade. But if it's not one of the top one or two earners in the arcade for the weeks it's out on test, even if it's still like third or fourth, you know, then you kill it, because it's not going to bring back enough of a return. All the companies had an idea of what games were going to do well before they put them out, but they didn't have an idea of why. They didn't talk to players. They didn't try to figure out why this game did well and why this game did poorly, or what features from this game we could take to use in future games because that's the feature the players really liked the most, and that's why they kept coming back to it. None of that went on. So there was a woman named Carol Cantor, another person that I've talked to, who had been at Fairchild Semiconductor and had been doing market research for them on digital watches and came to the conclusion that digital watches were not a great idea, which Fairchild didn't want to hear because they were going to launch digital watches, whether anyone thought they were a great idea or not. And it turned out they weren't a great idea for Fairchild to get into because Fairchild was getting in too late. The market was already peaking. The market was already oversaturating. We talked about the calculator and digital watch boom and bust cycles previously. She was working at Fairchild, and that wasn't working out because she was doing stuff and nobody wanted to hear what she had to say, even though they really should have listened. She ends up writing to Gene Lipkin and being like, you know, you don't know what's going on with your arcade games, but I can tell you. Gene was like, fine, come and do that then. So Gene Lipkin starts the first real marketing department in an arcade game company, in a coin-op company. It starts with just Carol Cantor, and later on, as it becomes more successful, she's able to bring in more people. There's some confusion. You'll see in a couple of places on the internet where people say that Carol came in 1973. That was actually based on other people's interviews with Carol Cantor. But it turned out, as, as everyone's memory after 40 years, fades on specifics like that. No fault to anybody. It just happens. When I was talking to Carol, we were able to figure out kind of milestones and what was going on and figure out that she actually came in 1976, not in 1973. We've got that established now. So in 1976, Atari starts doing more speaking to players, figuring out what they want, doing focus groups. So you combine that market research with the keen market sense that 
the team at Atari, Gene Lipkin and Frank Ballou and some of their regional people like Howie Rubin, uh, Howie Rubin have, you get a coin-op machine that's working very well. As I said, there was a period of time where they weren't selling as much just because the market in general wasn't doing as well. But they were always well-run, and they were always doing a good job because Gene had built such a good team. So as the coin-op division starts getting bigger and more successful in 1980, because at this point, Space Invaders has taken off, and now Asteroids is taking off at Atari. That's Atari's first mega hit and the best-selling game that they ever do, 70,000 units in the United States even bigger than Space Invaders. And in fact, it's probably asteroids coming along after Space Invaders that really convinces people in the market that video games are here to stay because Space Invaders was not the first thing that did a big, big number. Pong, through its various clones and copies and whatnot, was the first game to do a big numbers. But then what happened? 1974, boom, Pong's done. And the video game business, while it recovers somewhat, is not as big anymore. Space Invaders could very well be a fad, but then Asteroids comes along, and Asteroids takes off right where Space Invaders leaves off. Galaxian comes along from Namco, which is like Space Invaders but cooler, and it takes off right where things left off. Then, building off of Asteroids and Galaxian, you get Defender, you get Pac-Man, one right after the other, but Asteroids is that first one right after the other. When you have Space Invaders and Asteroids hit back-to-back, then you're like, okay, it's not just a fad for Space Invaders. People are going to come and play other games, too. Because even though Asteroids was a game in space with a spaceship just like Space Invaders, it was a different kind of game in space. So you could see that players were going to come back to play different types of video games, and you don't have a fad now, or at least not a narrow fad based on one game. (laughs) You have a business that you can carry on through several years. So Asteroids comes along. Things are getting going very well. And Gene Lipkin decides that the coin-op division really needs to start getting into arcades because that's where a lot of the real money is because this is the period of time when we're starting to take in billions of dollars in quarters at arcades. Obviously, it peaks at seven or eight billion a couple of years later, but even in this period, it's starting to take in billions, which is certainly more money than what Atari is making in sales just of arcade cabinets, which is a lucrative business, but not that lucrative a business. Just as in slot machines, the real money's not in the manufacturing, (laughs) it's in the operating. Gene Lipkin decides that they should follow in the footsteps of Bally, especially with Aladdin's Castle, and Sega, which also is operating arcades, and have their own, not just arcades, which they've dabbled in a little bit, but also get their own distributor network set up. Bally Manufacturing in the early 70s, started buying up distributors across the country, some of the larger distributors, so that they controlled every step of the chain. They were manufacturing product, they were distributing product, and then they owned Aladdin's Castle, so they were operating product. Now, obviously, they sold other distributors as well. They didn't create a closed network, because if they created a closed network, then, then you're starting to talk about monopoly concerns, antitrust concerns. But they had their own distribution network, and Gene Lipkin thought that was a really good idea, and he wanted to do the same thing at Atari. So he approached one of the architects of Bally's distribution system, Joe Robbins, who had been the owner of, or co-owner of Empire Distributing, whom we talked about before. We talked about them even in the context of Atari in, in the first episode of this set. 
because Empire was one of the largest and most respected distributors, and then it became kind of the cornerstone of Bally's distribution effort when Bally bought Empire, and then Joe Robbins became a board member at Bally and became very involved in their distribution business. He approached Joe Robbins to come into Atari to do the same thing for Atari that he'd helped do at Bally, set up a nationwide distribution system. To entice him to do that, he offered them the role of co-president of the coin-op division. So Gene and Joe were going to run this together with the idea that Gene would focus on his area of expertise, which is the manufacturer and sale of cabinets, and Joe would concentrate on his areas of expertise, which was the distribution and operation of product. Sounds great, except according to Gene, and we only have Gene's side of the story, Joe Robbins was at this point one of the, already in the early 80s, was one of the older guys involved in the business, so it's not surprising he's no longer with us. Nobody interviewed him about this kind of stuff that I'm aware of while he was still alive. He died a decade or more ago at this point. So we only have Gene's side. But Gene says that it turns out that Joe Robbins really wanted more than that. He didn't want to just be the distribution guy. He wanted to be in charge of what was going on at Atari Coin-Op. So things got very, very political. Frank Ballou told me that there was definitely a period of time where you could make great hay by going to one guy and saying, well, Joe said that we should do it this way, and then have the other guy say, well, then we should do it that way, which is actually what you're trying to get him to do. You know, you could kind of play them off of each other. (laughs) According to Gene, Gene is not a political guy. Gene does not like politics, and Gene did not want to be involved in any of that. So Gene Lipkin ultimately leaves the company in the middle of 1980 because he didn't want to be involved in that. And, And he had some other concerns. By this point, they've ended the pinball division. We talked about how they had a pinball division. Pinball just wasn't working for them, but Gene felt that they were finally about there. It's like they needed a long period of learning because they didn't have the built-in expertise that you had in Chicago, but he felt that they had finally gotten over the learning curve and were just to the point where now it might work, so they should give it a little more time, and Warner was like, no, we've been losing a lot of money on this. It's been ridiculous. Kill it. So he was kind of unhappy about that. I think he was a little unhappy about the more corporate nature of things, because Gene was definitely a free spirit, like so many of the early Atari executives were. And then you had Joe muscling in on his territory in ways that he didn't like, and was going to get very political and very ugly. And so he just decided to step away. He leaves the company. So that leaves Joe Robbins solely in charge. Joe Robbins was a very savvy distributor. And a very important tastemaker in the industry. The man had skills, but he'd never worked for a manufacturer before. He didn't necessarily understand the way that side of the business worked. I've talked to both Frank Ballou and Howie Rubin, who was another salesman in Atari Coin-Op at this time. Both of them worked there during the period of time that Joe Robbins was in charge. The sense that I got from both of them is that Unlike Gene, who understood when and how to push back on your engineers and manufacturing people on product, Joe didn't understand that. In late 1980, they have a game called Battlezone, which I'm sure you're familiar with. First-person tank game, vector graphics. Yeah, I think I remember seeing that at some point. Mm -hmm. I think it was more 
put in as a demonstration of more immersion 3D thing. I think I had something where I had this headset that I could pull down over me and then drive the tank around. I'm not sure if that was specific, but I remember seeing yeah, that, like that, that that wouldn't have necessarily been Battlezone itself because I don't think they ever made it that way. But, off or but yeah, but a similar type of game certainly. Battlezone was a pretty cool game. It was one of the very first 3D arcade games, presenting a three-dimensional world is what I mean by that. It did it through vector graphics, which we've talked about before. It wasn't their first vector graphics game. They'd done Lunar Lander and Asteroids by this point. But it was the first to kind of have this 3D immersive world. It was a pretty cool game. The engineers were convinced that it would be a very big hit, and the manufacturing people were convinced it would be a very big hit. So they manufactured a lot of them. And it was a hit. It was a pretty sizable hit. But they kept manufacturing them. Joe didn't know when to turn off the faucet. His manufacturing people and his engineers were telling him, this is going to be big. This is still big. This is big. Let's do it. And according to his salespeople, and, and again, you know, multiple perspectives. So this is the salespeople's perspective. He wasn't listening to them when they said, yeah, it's a great game, but it's about run its course. It's time to stop now. They overproduced it by a fair amount. Frank Ballou thinks that it nearly drove the coin-op division into, <laughs> into real financial distress. I've seen some sales sheets for Atari, and I saw in those sales sheets that Battlezone was discounted twice over its lifespan. And so that, again, lends credence to the fact—I mean, arcade games are often discounted when they get older. But the fact that they had to discount the price on it twice really says to me that this must be true, that they were having trouble— selling those last few cabinets. And so they were really taking a bath on Battlezone, even though it was a great game and a successful game. Most successful game in the world if you build too many of them. <laughs> so there was a little crisis in the company at that point, and they're not exactly sure why Joe got eventually dismissed from Atari, but they feel that the Battlezone situation was probably a good portion of it. And again, Joe Robbins was brilliant at what he did. It's just that what he did was not really arcade manufacturing and was arcade distributing. It just turned out he was the wrong guy at the wrong time. So Joe Robbins ends up being fired, let go sometime in 1981. Then there's a caretaker guy uh, named Ken Harkness that's there for a brief period. And then they get a guy named John Farrenden, who is very good. He had been involved in operation and distribution in the United Kingdom for a long time. And then he was vice president of international arcade business for Atari. And then he proved to be a very competent and savvy manager. And so then he was eventually brought in as the president of Atari CoinOp, uh, I think sometime in 1982. At that point, CoinOp was very well run again. Frank Ballou left at some point in there, but there was another very savvy salesman that had started about the same time as Frank Ballou named Don Osborne that was ready to step in at that point and take on a larger role. And Don Osborne was very good at what he did. Tragically, he died of a heart attack. I can't remember if it was in 82 or 83, but I mean, he died of a heart attack actually while he was still at Atari. Nobody obviously did any historical retrospective interviews with him because he was fairly young at the time too. I mean, it was, it was tragic that, that he died. He was very beloved and very good at what he did. So with John Farrand and Don Osborne kind of in charge, then once again, you had this great thing going. So there was a little blip in the middle there, but even during the little blip, it wasn't the worst in the world. Coin-op was very well run. That's really about all at this point that we have to say about Atari coin-op in the larger Atari story, because 
they're always kind of off on their own, doing their own thing and doing it well. So they're largely left alone by the Ray Kassars of the world. It really seemed, from what you told me there, that even though they had a good team, they knew what they were doing, they were trying to grow the business, they are not infallible. No. They had their own problems with personnel. They had their own problems with expansion, with selling product, all the problems you will have as a business. Mm -hmm. They had those because they had a team that was well put together. They had a willingness by upper management to get rid of people that were causing problems. They were able to correct things, especially during the battle zone area. Right, at least in terms of the arcade. But it it never went quite so well in home consoles. And they actually had some stability in home consoles. Michael Moon was there from the end of 1979 all the way through 1983, maybe even early 1984. I can't remember exactly when he left. Bill Grubb was there from 79 to 81. That was a long period of time. They had some people that were there for a long period. But there was a lot more meddling there. I think the consumer stuff was something that was more up Ray Kassar's alley and something that Ray Kassar was more interested in. Plus, it was the area that was really driving the company in terms of finances. So I think there was more of an instinct to meddle there than there was in Coinop. And that became a problem because once things are running a little more smoothly and once the company's growing exponentially— you don't necessarily want that same level of oversight from the very top. It's good that Ray Kassar was involved and engaged and interested, because you want that at the top. But he may have been overly so. He certainly was overly so in the opinion of the people that worked for him. So there you have it. While CoinOp is going through that, the main thing that's happening on the consumer side of things is figuring out the future direction of the company. That's kind of the big thing, along with the distribution stuff that we already hinted at, that is going to eventually create the downfall of Atari as a company. This is their forelays into actual computers as opposed to video game console. You got it. You got it exactly. So there's a story about Atari, and it's a story largely told by the engineers of Atari. And it's the story that's become codified. Books like Marty Goldberg and Kurt Vindel's book, Atari Inc. Business is Fun, that's the most comprehensive to date history of Atari in this period that's been attempted, tell the story that Atari started out as an engineering company, which it did. Owen Bushnell's an engineer. Ted Dabney, an engineer, became a marketing company, which to some degree it did because you put people in charge at the top like Ray Kassar that are more involved in marketing had a big hit in the VCS, and then, because they were so marketing-focused and so driven by marketing projections, were so focused on selling as many VCSs as possible that nobody was looking for the next thing. They basically felt they could sell the VCS forever, and they didn't have to put much effort into replacing it, and every time somebody came up with an idea to replace it, it was shot down because even though they maybe had a vague idea that someday in the future they'd have to sell something else, that someday is not today, and we just want to keep creating VCSs and selling VCSs and don't want to do anything that will interfere with that because we're making fat commissions and we're making fat margins 
And we're all happy sales and marketing people that have no vision for the future and don't want to do anything else until we absolutely have to. The engineers are the Cassandras that are railing against this and telling them all the time, we need a new product, we need a new product, we're engineering people we know. And the marketing people are just oblivious to their cries, and so they sell the VCS and never replace it until it's too late and the whole business dies. That, ladies and gentlemen, if you talk to some people, is the story of Atari between 1980 and 1983. Makes perfect sense because we're vilifying one group unanimously as being those jerks over there and our beloved engineers, your friend and mine, (laughs) the engineers. That are game players just like you and me. That's right. So you, as a video game player, you and me, you can work together as an engineer and bring your vision to the world. And because your vision to the world is so wonderful, everyone will love it. Those freaking salespeople over there, they just got money grubbing suit wearing whatever. That's right. It's almost become a good versus evil story. I mean, no one goes no one goes that far in labeling one side good and one side evil, but it almost is a good versus evil story. It dances on that line. The reality is far more complicated and has to do with a lot more competing goals and competing objectives. And so we need to dive into this a little bit and explore this with a little more nuance. First of all, the engineers did understand that the VCS was not going to sell forever. That's very true. And the engineers were hard at work on the next video game system almost from the moment they had finished the VCS. Jay Miner and his team of chip designers and systems designers, hardware engineers, began putting together the next version pretty much right away. The next version was going to have a modified version, a better version of the TIA chip, television interface adapter, that was in the VCS. It was going to have a nice dedicated sound chip, which is something that the VCS did not have. It was still going to be a 6502 system, but it was going to have these better chips. It was going to have more RAM because 128 bytes, even back then, was a pretty paltry amount of RAM. It was going to kind of carry the vision forward, and it was probably going to be ready to go in about 1979 or, or 1980-ish. Well, a couple of things happened. First of all, 1979 or 1980 really is too soon to introduce the next system. There's no question that Atari waited too long, and there's no question that people didn't understand product cycles yet back then. But we know now because we have enough console generations worth of experience, that you want something to run for five to seven years. In those days, more five. Seven is really kind of becoming a newer standard today. And of course, now, tangent, we might even be going to an incremental upgrade path that more mirrors what goes on in the smartphone market, where something new comes out every 18 months, where You do an incremental upgrade instead of a full new hardware upgrade. That's what we're seeing maybe with the PS4 Pro and the Scorpio. The point is, five years is really your console cycle. So if you do the math, 77, 78, 79, 80, 81, 82. And if you really want to delve into the whole console cycle thing, we go into that in great detail in one of our very early episodes. Yes, we do. If if you're willing to forgive the audio quality, we've come so far. (laughs) we do delve into a lot of that in our console cycles episode. You really don't want a system probably before 1981 
Even 82 is pushing it a little bit just because the hardware kind of advanced so rapidly in this period. The VCS was designed by its designers to be able to play everything that was existing at the time it was made. It was not really a forward-looking design. It ended up being incredibly forward-looking since they were trying to keep the cost down so much. They moved so much functionality out of hardware into software that it ended up being more flexible and being able to do more types of software than they'd ever imagined. But because they saw it as already practically obsolete by the time they built it, the engineers thought probably three years they should have something else ready. Realistically speaking, from a a marketing standpoint, you probably wanted to wait until at least 1981 to release something new because you don't want to release stuff too frequently or people will get upset. Then 82 is five years. You absolutely need something by 82 because that's your five-year mark. Not that they knew that at the time, because there'd never been a console cycle before. We just know that in hindsight. 1979 was really too soon to introduce a new hardware system. Plus, you've now had the Trinity come out. You've now had home computers starting to make some waves. It was a very easy and logical decision, and I think a decision that both the engineers and the marketing people mutually agreed on, that rather than replace the VCS at this juncture, What we need to do is do a home computer. Remember, in this period of time, a home computer is a very different conception than what we think of as a home computer now. The Apple II in this time period is not really a home computer. Yes, people are buying it for use in the home. It's expensive. It's over $1,000. You think Apple's cost a lot now. Back then, oh dear. Over $1,000 in 1978, 1979 money. $1,000 now is a lot for a computer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And this is not equivalent to that. This is many thousands more in today's money. So the Apple II is not a home computer and is actually, as we've talked about before, it's the great myth of Apple that's built up in hindsight. Apple was not selling particularly well at this point, not pre-VisiCal. A home computer was a computer that was under $600. That was a home computer. The TRS-80 is a home computer. TRS-80, as we discussed in our Trinity episode, is a very primitive home computer, barely above character-based graphics in its capabilities, and certainly not in color. It's black and white. It's a very limited utility compared to an Apple II, but it's also much cheaper. That's the trade-off. Atari decides that they're going to take their fancy new video chip and their fancy new sound chip, and they're going to make a full-color computer that is cheaper than an Apple. and is so much better as a game machine. But they don't give up on the console idea right away. They decide, well, let's kind of do both. We can make it a high-end console and a computer. And so we'll do a fully functional version with more memory and a real keyboard, etc. And that's going to be our computer. And then we'll also do a version that has kind of the same chips, but less RAM maybe throw in a membrane-style keyboard to make it a little my-first-computer kind of thing. We'll make that the video game system. So they divide it in two. Then they decide, well, no, that's really not a good idea. The 800, the high-end version, is is going to be a kind of expensive computer, so we should really have a high-end computer and a low-end computer. Finally, at the end of the day, it morphs into a high-end and a low-end computer, and those are the Atari 400 and the Atari 800. It's the same architecture, it's just less RAM, slightly cheaper components like the keyboard and whatnot. 
they're called that because they're going to have 4K and 8K of memory, respectively. They end up shipping with more than that by the time they come out. That was the initial plan. So they're going to have their 400 and their 800 computer. And the 400 is going to be the more home computer because it's cheaper. And then the 800 is going to be less of a home computer and is going to be more marketed as a business machine, really, as much as it's marketed as anything else, despite its graphics being so advanced and despite it being kind of an obvious game playing system. They really feel like they want to try to hit that small business market as well. They end up in late 1979 releasing these two computers. There's immediately problems. It's obviously a very good game machine, but they don't position it as that. They really want to get into the small business market, and they're smart to want to get into the business market because that's where a lot of the money is. It's after Apple gets into the business market with VisiCalc that Apple starts becoming big, so you can't fault them for that. But they have an obvious game-playing machine, and they're not really pushing it as a game machine, which is kind of unfortunate. The other problem is that they want to control the software themselves. This is kind of deeply rooted in what they are. It's not just in the video game business, in the VCS business, that they control the hardware and control the software. Because remember, we're not the third-party developers yet. This is the period of time when the hardware maker also makes all the software for the console. They're also a subsidiary of Warner Communications. And Warner Communications owns Warner Brothers, and Warner Records. Warner Brothers doesn't make the film projector. Warner makes the movie. Warner doesn't make the record player. Warner makes the record. Warner understands that because of the nature of this video game business, they need to make the video game system, or they need to make the computer. But they're not hardware-oriented. What they want to really do is make the video game, make the computer game, make the piece of computer business software. Make the content. Exactly. They are a content-driven company. So all up and down the hierarchy, from Atari all the way up to Warner and back, there's an idea that they really want to control the software. So they don't release user manuals for the 400 and 800 computers. User manuals for programming the like. I'm not talking about, this is the power button, this is how you turn me on. I'm talking about user manuals for actually <laughs> programming letting you know what all the calls are to the processor and to the graphics chip and all of that. They don't publish technical specifications, and they don't reach out, really, to computer software companies. They're not taking the Apple approach. Apple is a very open platform, and we can thank Steve Wozniak for that. Not Steve Jobs. Because as we know from the Macintosh, which was his baby, <laughs> Steve Jobs doesn't like open platforms himself. <laughs> but Steve Wozniak loved open platforms. And in this instance, with the Apple II, it was Steve Wozniak that got his way. So Apple's very open, and everyone's making software for Apple. Radio Shack maybe not quite as open, but there are still third-party companies making Radio Shack software. Atari does not want third parties really making software for their computer. They're not going out of the way to protect it. There's not a chip in there, like the later 10S chip, uh, lockout chip in the NES. There's not special anti-software piracy chips like in the computer or something like that. They're not going out of their way to stop people, but they're not going out of their way to help people either. The problem is Atari doesn't have the software people they need. They've been focusing on making this hardware. They haven't gotten to the point where they're figuring out how to make all the software on it yet. Did the concept to do that come more from the engineering side or the marketing and executive side? 
My understanding, and unfortunately, I have been largely unsuccessful in tracking down people that were involved in the home computer division. My understanding is that this was more of an executive and marketing side decision. And that makes sense to me, because like I said, Warner is not in the record player business. They're in the record business. It makes sense to me that they didn't want Atari to be in the computer business so much as they wanted Atari to be in the computer software business. That means closing your system, especially since they already were operating with a closed system with the VCS. And, of course, the computer started as a video game system. So even on the engineering side in the very beginning, there was probably some thought that that would be a closed system. But I do think it was more marketing-driven than engineering-driven. They're not prepared. They don't have the software people ready. In fact, they are so unprepared on software that they have to take three programmers from the VCS programming group to really hurriedly throw together the operating system for the computer because they don't have OS programmers that they've hired specifically to write that on the computer side. They have to borrow people from the VCS division and take people off of making VCS games in order to create the operating system for their computer. They're not equipped to do this. It's all part of the consumer division. There isn't a separate home computer division at this point. And the consumer division isn't really ready to take on that responsibility. It's a very confused launch. Let's put it that way. I mean, it comes out in October 1979. And they really don't do very well at all in their first year. They sell a few systems, but they lose money and they're not doing well with it. They finally decide that they have to have their own home computer division. I mean, it's a fairly obvious decision to make. They decide they have to have their own home computer division, which does show that they were serious, at least about trying to get into home computers, because they had two choices at this point. If it's this chaotic, they can either decide we're a video game company and dabbling in this other technology was a mistake, or they can decide this technology really is going to be part of the wave of the future, and so we need to be a part of that. So we're going to separate it out and let it be its own thing. We did cover before in other episodes how a lot of companies were on the computer craze almost, and Atari is no exception. Mm -hmm. A lot of other companies really went, consoles are a fad, computers are coming next, they're going to be cheaper, they are more versatile, they're going to replace and supersede consoles. Right. Everyone wanted to be involved in home computers, exactly like you said. And so Atari decides they want to be, and Ray takes the lead on that. And I know that because I told you I talked to Alan Henrik, who was the comptroller for the consumer division. Sometime in late 79 or early 80, somewhere in that time frame, Ray Kassar goes directly to Alan Henrik and says, I want you to put together a business plan, essentially. I can't remember if it was exactly the term business plan, but essentially a business plan for a home computer division within Atari. So this came down straight from the top. I mean, for all I know, there was some other executive in the organization that was lobbying Ray to do that. But the point is, it's not people in the consumer products division clamoring. It's like, we got to do home computers. I mean, it's from the very top. Ray Kassar wants to be involved in this business. And he'd explored IBM and Apple and other companies that were involved or may become involved in this business to see what kind of partnerships or what kind of deals could be swung. He was interested in getting into this. He understood that this was a new consumer product area that Atari should be in. And he deserves credit for that. He absolutely deserves credit for that. Atari, you know, they talk about how Atari was VCS only, but the top management of the company decided that they should also be in home computers. 
And that was ultimately a very good place for Atari to go. It didn't end up working out for Atari, as we'll discuss, but that was exactly what they should have been doing. They should have been moving towards computers. And Ray Kassar did that. So let's not say that the marketing people were just VCS, VCS, VCS. That's the case. Why is there a home computer division? Pretty much. Ordered from the CEO. So Alan Henrik puts that plan together. And in about October 1980, they establish a separate home computer division. They hire a guy named Roger Bodisher to come in and run it. Roger Bodisher understands that, whoa, wait a minute. What we have here is a game machine. We need to make games. We need to help other companies make games, not just our people. So at that point, they become more focused on what they should have been focused on all along. Not that they abandon trying to get business involved, because they understand that's a market. From October 1980, when Roger Bodisher comes in, they start to embrace it as a game machine. They start hiring in tons of programmers, and the mandate of those programmers is to churn out games. I haven't been successful in talking to executives at the home computer division. I'd love to talk to Roger Bodisher, for instance. But I have talked to a couple of the people, John Powers, who I mentioned before, and Ken Balthaser, who went on to a long career in video games, that were involved on the programming side of things during this time period of rapid growth in the home computer division. And, and they said absolutely, especially Ken, said absolutely. Our mandate was get games out and get games out as fast as you can. I think that they were going to look more outside to partner with outside companies to try to do more of the non-game stuff and really try to do games internally. In fact, Ken Balthaser, who was kind of in charge of tools, was really desperately trying to get more tools developed and more tools in place. And he, he had a great challenge trying to, to do that because all the programmers kept being shifted towards games, games, games. At that point, you have two separate divisions. And you have two separate visions, quite frankly, for the future of the company. Is the future of the company in video games, or is the future of the company in home computers? Or more software versus hardware. Sure. Absolutely. Obviously, it's theoretically possible that the company could grow big enough and grow bold enough to be involved in both. But in this period of time, that's not necessarily viable. We talked very extensively in the Crash article about how home computers, which again, are not your PCs of the day. They're not these great multi-purpose systems that you can do the business on and do the games on. Home computers in this game were cheaper computers, and more and more with the introduction of the Commodore VIC-20 and the redesign of the Texas Instruments TI-99-4A in 1981, are cartridge-based machines. And of course, the Atari 800 has a cartridge port as well cartridge-based machines that are essentially more powerful video game systems that also let you do a limited number of things that aren't purely video games. There's not necessarily a place for both a video game system and a home computer system in the mindset of people at this time. And we talked about this in the context of other companies. We talked about this very much with Mattel. We talked about this very much with Coleco. We certainly talked about this in the context of Commodore. And so Atari is really in a situation where they almost have to choose. I've gotten mixed messages from different people on what they decided to choose. I don't know that that's a reflection so much on one person being right and one person being wrong as it is a reflection on how fluid the situation was 
and how difficult it was for Atari to figure out itself what its own future was going to be. That is what leads to this technology problem with the VCS. Michael Moon has told me, told me in our interview, that there was a meeting, probably in late 81-ish, with him and Tony Bruhl, who was his counterpart in International. So Michael Moon was president of the consumer division, but that consumer division operated in the United States. International sales were handled through Tony Bruhl, who continues to be a giant in the industry. He runs a consulting company called IDG that's a huge, important consulting company in the video game industry. That was his counterpart in International. A meeting with the two of them and with the Warner office of the president. So we're not just talking about Manny, who is the executive directly responsible for Atari on the Warner side. We're also talking about Joe Horowitz and forget who the, what the third guy's name was off the top of my head, as well as the CFO of Warner, Burt Wasserman. So we're talking about this full group, not just Manny. By this time, Michael Moon knows that they need a new console. Because here's the thing. Michael Moon is the one guy that came out of the toy business. We talked about how a lot of these consumer marketing guys were coming out of fields that were not germane to what Atari was doing. But we also talked about the part of the reason for that is because there was nobody. Video games were new. There were no veterans in video games. And so Ray Kassar's strategy, and I asked him about his hiring strategy and building his team, was to target people that were at the top of their field in some kind of consumer marketing capacity and were at the top of their game, and then to bring them into Atari because he figured if they were hotshot marketers and hotshot consumer people, it's not that big a remove to get into this. And of course, we talked about how they were all East Coasters because Silicon Valley was not a consumer product place at that time. For consumer products, you went to the old big East Coast firms. That's where all the consumer people were. But Michael Moon, unlike so many of these other people, at least came out of the toy business. So Michael Moon knew that no toy has a third Christmas. That's the mantra. Unlike a video game system, which has a five to seven year life cycle, most toys have a two to three year life cycle. So if a console is a toy, then mm -hmm. it will only survive for two to three years. Right. Since this is a slightly different situation, you may be able to push that a little longer. You may be able to push that into a fourth year even. But Michael Moon is the president of Consumer, and Michael Moon knows the way this works. This is why I get kind of fed up to believe that the marketing people, every last one of them, because Atari has so many vice presidents and so many presidents because it grows to be a big company. Maybe it even has too many of them. Maybe it becomes too top-heavy, and I think at some point it does. But the point is, basically, you have to say that all of these people that were hired into Atari by Ray and his team because they are people that were already at the top of their game in other fields. And then you have to say that every single one of them collectively lost their minds and forgot everything they knew about sales and marketing in a consumer product capacity, because they were all consumer marketing people, even if they weren't video game people, and were so blinded by dollar signs that they failed to comprehend that a product eventually needs to be replaced. That is nonsense. I, I'm just going to come out and say it. That is nonsense. Michael Moon came up through Mattel and Milton Bradley. He knows no toy 
has a third Christmas. Unless you're G.I. Joe or Barbie. No toy has a third Christmas. Michael Moon knew in 1981 that they needed something new. Steve Bristow in 1981. At this point, we talked about him in his capacity in coin-off. By this time, he's moved on to consumer head of engineering. Steve Bristow is working on new systems in the consumer division to replace the VCS. Michael Moon knows that he needs something in late 81, early 1982, at the absolute latest. So they have to go to engineering and say, well, guys, and, and engineering's we need something. working. And engineering's already working. Good. I mean, they're, they're already doing it. That's what I said. Steve Bristow has got a system that he's been working on. Right. Michael Moon says that at this meeting, he was told by the Warner Office of the President that it's fairly clear that home computers are going to be the future. So the best thing to do is to ride the VCS for as long as possible, and let's not really worry about replacing it. Ray Kassar says that he was interested certainly in expanding the home computer business, but he says that Warner really put the kibosh on that. Warner was the one that told him not to get so involved in the home computer business. Manny Gerard has also said in interviews that he never was really as enthusiastic about the home computer business, that it was really the video game stuff that he kind of liked. And there's no doubt that after Ray Kassar was fired and Manny Gerard took a more active role in management of the company, because Ray was gone and he was serving as an interim kind of CEO until they hired a replacement, that there was definitely a renewed focus on video games at the expense of computers in that time period. So there's kind of two different versions of the story here. Right. Is Warner saying, yay, video games, or yay, computers? Exactly. Warner's a complex company. So as I said, this was a meeting with the full office of the president. This was not just a meeting with Manny. It's possible that there was disagreement even within Warner Communications about which way was the future. Maybe Manny really didn't like the home computer thing, but maybe Joe Horowitz and and the other people were more gung-ho on computers. There's a lot of competing things, and it wouldn't surprise me if, if the situation really was this confused. Because at the end of the day, Atari fails to advance its home computers adequately and fails to advance its video game consoles adequately. You're going to go halfway with both, but don't really bring either to fruition. Come 1982, 83, you got nothing to put out. So it kind of makes sense. It may not actually be a contradiction. It kind of makes sense for Warner to be sending mixed messages on home computers and video games, because that would really kind of explain why Atari ends up completely failing to figure out what they're doing there as well. And obviously, Michael Moon, I mean, Michael Moon's talking 30 years later, and he may have something of a vested interest in trying to make himself look good (laughs) in what happened. I mean, the thing that convinces me, well, there are two things that convince me. First, they were working on a new system. That's a fact. Steve Bristow has said, and and there's information on the prototypes, etc. So the fact that they were working on a new system shows that they did understand they need a new system. And the other thing that does convince me is he came out of the toy industry. And so he does understand the way that works. So even if he's slightly misremembering or slightly painting himself in a good light, I think the gist of it is true that he was ready to go with something new in the 81-82 time period. And for whatever reason, he was dissuaded from doing so by upper management somewhere along the chain. 
Some other thing that you've told me in the past really bring to light here that we're not dealing with just marketing and engineering. We're dealing with three parties here. We're dealing with Atari management. We're dealing with Atari engineers and production. And, and this is what I think is really people keep forgetting. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with Warner management. Mm -hmm. Warner management is this spectral thing out in the ether that keeps poking into Atari and sends Atari management mixed signals, sends Atari production and engineering mixed signals, and really throws the entire thing for a loop. It's sort of like Atari seems to be going along, doing its thing well, or at least well enough, and trying to advance, sort of like Atari's arcade mm -hmm. and coin-op division. Right. Instead of letting them be or just having a gentle guiding hand, mm -hmm. it's sort of like with what Ray was doing with the consumer division is they're constantly meddling and going in there and messing with things and changing things up and sending mixed signals and going... Right. On, on a top level, on, on, a, top on level. a strategy level, because right. one thing, well, no, it's still, it's a very valid point. I mean, Atari is not a two-headed monster. It's a freaking Hydra, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, Ray was clear that in this time period, it, it'll change and we'll get there. Not in this hour, but we'll get there. Ray was very clear that Warner did leave him alone to run the company. So when it came to running the company, it was largely Ray's show. But it's also true that Manny Girard was keeping a close eye on it, that Warner was very interested in what was going on at the company, even though they were not largely interfering with what Ray was doing on a day-to-day -day basis kind of thing. They were a constant presence, and I think the mixed signals that they were sending, and I think they probably were really sending mixed signals, were a great detriment. Steve Bristow is working on the system. It's coming together, and at this point, the home computer division gets involved and doesn't want the consumer division continuing with this development because they don't want their technology overshadowed. They're afraid that if the consumer division is allowed to move forward with its own technology, that that may become the new technology base at Atari, and then the home computer division is, is left out in the cold. This, again... I wish I had more of a perspective from the home computer division, because the perspective I have on this is the consumer division side. So, of course, the consumer division is going to say, we were doing everything right, and those darn home computer people meddling. You want to have all sides, but right now, this is the only side I have. But again, it feels like there's some truth to it, even though I only have one side, because what they end up doing is instead of continuing with Bristow's hardware development, they repackage the Atari computer as a game console. You may remember, of course, that it was meant to be a game console all along at first. Now they're actually going to repackage it as a game console and release that later in 1982 as the Atari 5200. A couple of problems there. First of all, that home computer was meant to be released as a video game system in 1979. Now in 1982, we're releasing this 1979 system as our next generation video game system. It's literally old technology before it even comes out. Uh, another thought that comes to mind is it's almost like the computer division and the video game division are like two children and they need the love and attention of mom and dad. They get this idea in their head that, well, unless I perform well and I sabotage my sibling over here, 
then I will get all the attention and mom and dad will shove the other one off. From everything that people have told me, and like I said, I've talked to VPs and division presidents, etc., Ray Kassar's Atari was a cutthroat environment, whether intentionally or just because of Kassar's management style, the result was it was a cutthroat environment. And so absolutely, there was this feeling that you needed to press to survive. And especially, I think, and this is me putting my own analysis on it, not what anyone's told me, especially since, as we said, it really did look like there may only be one market going forward. It was either going to be video games win or home computers win. It wasn't going to be some people are happy on their consoles, some people are happy on their own home computers. It was going to be, there was going to be one. If I'm at Atari and I want to keep my job, you got this internal strife of the computer division or the consumer division. They're the enemy. Mm-hmm. I need to keep all of my technology secret. I need to keep what we're doing a secret. Mm-hmm. I don't interact with those people. I don't communicate with those people. Mm-hmm. I am openly hostile to those people. Absolutely. I think there's absolutely some of that going on. So they end up releasing the 5200 in mid-1982. It's really too little, too late. It's not a significant enough advance to be a brand new system. It has problems with the joysticks because they have analog joysticks instead of digital, which means it's like the it's a full-size joystick, but it's like the the thumbsticks that you have on a modern console where if you move it a little bit, you move a little bit, you move it a lot, it moves a lot because it's not a digital system where it's just on and off. With a digital system like an Atari joystick or like a D-pad on an NES, you press it down, you complete a circuit, it's on, and you lift up and the circuit goes away and it's off. So you only have one speed. It's, it's analog, but they neglect to make themselves centering. So they're floppy. I think we talked about this in a previous episode. They're very floppy, which makes it hard to play a game like, say, Pac-Man, which requires precision in changing directions. I mean, it's the games in the arcade are mostly not using analog controls. They're mostly using digital joysticks. So to not have a digital joystick in the home creates a problem in a lot of games like, say, Pac-Man, which is kind of popular at the moment. We'll come back to that later. The 5200 is released in mid-1982. From a marketing standpoint, they position it as this is the Cadillac and the VCS is, I'm not a car person, but <laughs> the, the more common that's terrible to complete an analogy that way. <laughs> but the point is you have it, it's the workman and then the v, uh, the 5200 your high class. So that's led people to say that they were planning to carry both systems on because they love those VCS sales so much. They were actually not planning to keep the VCS on. At this point they were planning a transition. And again this comes from Michael Moon. I asked him, I didn't even lead him. I said, "How did you see the two systems coexisting?" And he said, "I didn't." The 5200 was going to come out and was going to replace the VCS over time. I mean, you always have a transition. The the NES didn't vanish the day the Super Nintendo came out. But it was really seen as the next generation. But the problem was because of all those problems it had and because of the surprise appearance of the ColecoVision, which was such a superior system, the 5200 just didn't do all that great in the marketplace. It had problems and it, it didn't do great. So they were forced to continue to rely on the VCS as much as anything because their next generation system didn't work out. But their next generation system didn't work out because they were forced to scrap the work they had been doing and release the home computer division's technology instead. As you can see, the senior management at the consumer division understood that there was a transition that needed to be made, and they were fully planning to do that transition. 
And I believe Michael Moon when he says this, because I think, as we've discussed here, the, the additional evidence bears Michael Moon out on this. They were preparing to transition in late 1981, early 1982, to a next-generation system. They were forced to push back that reintroduction from late 81 to mid-82, and they were forced to introduce a less effective new hardware system than they could have created on their own because of the rivalry with the home computer division. And so because of that, their transition utterly failed. But it wasn't because we're just going to make the VCS forever because we're marketing people and we don't understand product. They were ready and they blew it. To step back for a second, they are overly reliant on the VCS and failing to make a console transition at about the time where what is now common accepted wisdom says that they had to make a console transition. We still have this distribution thing in the background that I talked about that's kind of a ticking time bomb that's ready to go off. With all the sales that people were doing. Mm -hmm. And we have the emergence of the first third parties, which we're not going to talk about right now, but which is happening. And we also have the problem of the multi-headed Hydra, that is right. Warner Communication. In 1981, they do $1 billion in sales. They're doing great. They're the fastest growing company in American history. They're on top of the world. But these forces are coming together. And so as 1982 dawns, the company is preparing to have its best sales year in history, because they will. They'll be a $2 billion company. Their best sales year in history with some of the biggest product launches they have ever seen. Despite all of that, it is all going to fall apart. And that is where we are going to take it in our record-breaking... Four-parter! We had to do it. Fourth episode on Atari between the founding of the company and the breakup of the original company in 1984. So that is where we will go next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com, email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com, and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.